Hey, I just have a recording going right now and I can just edit out any part. Um, but I guess I'll, I'll just do like a quick little intro and then we can just, you know, talk about, you know, wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess just like a background of how I met you. We were both stationed in the army uh, with 2CR in Germany. And, and I, you know, I think I got there maybe two weeks before you guys came back from deployment. And, and, you know, it was kind of a, you know, I, I didn't know you super well, you know, we just kind of briefly knew each other, but I mean, you were always, you know, super cool with everybody. And I don't think there was a single person I ever heard that didn't like you, didn't like being around you, you know, or had any problems with you whatsoever. And then and that was kind of, the extent, I guess, of our of our interaction, and we both kind of, you know, are out of the army now and living our lives. And you know, I'll see stuff you post on Facebook, you know, once in a while and stuff like that. And I, I see just a lot of, I don't know, I guess people saying that you know, like the country is you know going in a terrible direction, and there's all these problems, and culture's dying, and you know, there's so many problems that are always being put out, and then. You know, I see people like you, at least from my perception, that I think are living their lives in like a very meaningful, proper way and are kind of just the antithesis to all this. Everything is wrong with, you know, our whole society. I So I like to, you know, have conversations with people that I know that I feel like are really just living their life in a good way that I find interesting. Yeah. So I, I would just be interested in, you know, kind of what got you to live the life that you're living now with the perspective that you have now so i guess we could even start in when you were younger in childhood just kind of how were you brought up i had a i had an awesome upbringing um i kind of think of it as growing up like mark twain i had <laughs> mom both really loved me um sisters i was good with them bunch of kids in the neighborhood this is upstate new york a village called Johnson City, New York, about an hour south of Syracuse. It was one of those neighborhoods, kids' bikes are always in the front yard, always playing stickball in the street. A lot of, you know, all the cliches. You come inside when the lights, when the street lights come on, that sort of thing. Um, I posted about it the other day. My, my therapist fired me or graduated me, one or the other. <laughs> he would dig deep a little bit. I don't know if this is too much information, but he would try to dig deep a little bit about things to see you know, where I might, I don't know, I guess therapists dig into your childhood right off the bat. I said, well, I had a dad who gave me a hug and a kiss and told me he loved me every single night, was there for me for whatever I needed. My mom, the same thing. And I always felt like they listened to me. I, you know, I had healthy outlets for, for my energy. It was just, it was an ideal childhood. It really was. I, I it was, it couldn't have been possibly better. So I guess to answer your question a little bit, a positive outlook. My dad was always positive. My mom was always positive. They encouraged me to look into things. Um, you know, my mom was a, a gun smuggler in Cuba. She came to the United States when she was like in her late thirties, I think, you know, waited around and, and did what she had to do to get out of Cuba, came to the United States. She was like a gun smuggler over there. She was part of the revolution. She was a political refugee and all that. And she got to America and she's like, this place is the best. You can do whatever you want in this country. So I'm telling you, Wes, I grew up with that in my mind. I'm an American. I can do whatever I want here. And anything that I had interest in, my mom and dad, they encouraged me. Like, oh, that's what you're into? 
go after it. Now there were boundaries. It was very strict. I didn't talk back to my parents, anything like that. Yeah. But, Immigrant mentality. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know what? You mentioned the thing about that we were in the same barracks. So your class, uh, when we talk about people being negative, there's, and you've heard it from people, they say, so the Vietnam era guys, oh, we were so hard, but the World War II era guys are probably saying these guys are soft compared to us. And then the Vietnam guys are saying that the Desert Storm guys are soft compared to them. The Desert Storm, you know, it keeps going like that. Nice mm -hmm. to hear these types of things. And your class and the class that came after you, I had an argument actually with one of the, uh, the senior NCOs. Like, oh, these young guys, they can't do. I said, they can't do what? I said, what is it that you think these young guys are deficient in? I said, because their land nav is better than yours. Their PT is better than yours. They can call for fire. They're really squared away. And your class was and the other ones in the, in, in the barracks. So I was thinking, I'm not going to get into this gruff, oh, we've done it longer attitude. If, if people can bring it, they can bring it. And if they can't, they can't. Just the fact that somebody's been around longer or, or they want this, this notion of, oh, the world used to be so great and now it's horrible. First of all, there's no utility in that. You're not going to get anywhere. And second of all, it doesn't describe the truth. You know, that's just, I guess, how I see it. So to link those two things, yeah, I had an awesome childhood. My parents were super supportive of any of my endeavors. If something like piqued my interest, yeah, go get it. Get after it. You can do it. You're an American. There's nothing stopping you here. Nothing. So I just kind of continued on with that. Yeah, that, uh, that's something that I don't see a lot just from perspective wise of looking at it that way, because I'll even find myself falling into that kind of thinking sometimes where, you know, you always have like the older generation will be like, oh, this new music isn't music. You know, back in my day, our music was amazing. And it right. just continues down the line. And like, oh, I love the music that came out, you know, around my you know lifetime, maybe like the 15 to 20 range and stuff. And then like the new music that comes out, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. I don't even like it. You know, I don't even understand how anyone can like it. And I'll have to like catch myself because I know I'm doing the thing that right. it's so easy to fall into because it's familiarity and comfort is, is the thing that like, I think a lot of people crave and I crave, I want that just very known quantities of everything and understanding. And when I hear things come out that are, that are opposed to that, it makes me nervous because it makes me feel like things are shifting and that I'm not, my place in society and how I view culture is not clearly defined. And that's, you know, chaotic and scary. So it's easy to get into it. Like, Oh, that's just bad stuff. That's just not, not like it is. So, right. I mean, so I guess it was just your parents. Would you credit them almost completely just for, for putting that into your brain? hundred percent. That was my world. You know, they, you know, when you're a little kid, your parents might as well be God to you. Yeah. You know, like you said, the thing about um, a lot of people like to fall back on what's familiar and they assign value to familiarity, right? I had it like this. This was the music I had growing up. So that must be better. When you start to think a little bit, you realize that isn't the case. And my parents, they were pretty open-minded. They were both conservatives, but very open-minded. And, and it's hard to kind of explain that. You know, my mother wasn't involved in theater, this and that, but she was also a staunch conservative on top of that. She was kind of a free thinker, not pigeonholed in anything. And yeah, I never fell into the, oh, it's familiar. We've always done it this way. This is the right way. That kind of thing. That didn't, that didn't work in my house. You know, everything deserved a chance, right? Every thought, like if I had some crazy thought, well, let's sit at the dinner table and talk about it. Oh, you have this thought. Let's hash it out. Let's unpack that. You might be right. So it was, 
yeah, I, I hope my kids have an upbringing like I had. Yeah. I hope my wife will be just as good as my mom or better, but I hope that I can be somewhere where my parents were because that's where it all came from for being, I don't want to say open-minded. That's a cliche, right? But just for being, um, they never allowed me to be a nihilist, right? Any kind of nihilistic belief in anything? No way, man. That's just a lazy way of thinking. So, yeah. Yeah, it's that that in in, a, in and of itself is is really interesting to me. Like, I know a few people who have a very like nihilistic um, kind of Nietzsche. Like, life is meaningless. There isn't really a real purpose in this. So, what's the point? And, you know, they'll argue that they're being real, that they're being that you're, you know, I, I've, I've heard the arguments that people who don't have this view are too weak minded to really fully grasp the meaninglessness of life. So they I, assign meaning to things in an effort to cope with their inability to deal with life. And, and, and from th that perspective, I just don't, I don't, I, I don't understand. I don't completely understand where it comes from i'm sure some of it may be like parents and upbringing and stuff like that but i i just don't understand how how like a lack of meaning can be attached to life like how you can't just find like deep meaning in something somewhere which i guess you know more than anyone else too because you know jordan peterson's wrote two books on on the whole thing of actually finding meaning in life and so i guess that I, i'll jump back to your childhood but i'm curious what like now really gives you meaning in life that you don't have a nihilistic perspective i wish i wish i had a good answer for this like uh, uh i should say i wish i had an original answer for this but you brought up jordan peterson when he said that if your ultimate goal is to be happy in life you may or may not get there it may have more to do with your brain chemistry than something else it may do this, it may do that. There's a lot of uncertainty there, almost like it's chaotic to think about that. Oh, happiness, am I striving for happiness? What does that even mean? Do I have a plan? But it says, adopt as much responsibility as you can. Take on as much responsibility as you're able to handle. Find that meaning and you'll feel fulfilled in that. That works for me, you know? Like he says, where, where responsibility is abdicated by someone else, there's an opportunity there. Right. Like he takes that whole thing about, oh, I'm at work and nobody else is pulling up their their weight. They're not pulling their weight and I have to do all this extra work. Right. Most people, it's very reasonable to say, oh, of course, that would be annoying. All we want to do is we want to complain and him and haw and get all filled up with piss and vinegar about the fact that somebody else isn't pulling their weight. But what does a philosopher, what does a, a, a thinker like Jordan Peterson says? He says where their response, where they abdicate their responsibility. There's opportunity there. Take that on from them. And all of a sudden now I'm irreplaceable. All of a sudden I'm doing with my deed rather than my words, just kind of like they say, put your nose down to the grindstone or whatever it is. Just get after it. Do more work. Uh, uh, take on more hobbies. Do more reading. Just do more, do more, do more. And the meaning will be there. Take on more responsibility. Oh, here's another kid. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to do that. Oh, I'm going to be responsible for being a healthy human being. Oh, I'm going to take responsibility for, for my body, what I put into it, for how much I work out. I'm going to I'm 100% responsible for all of this. I'm taking on all the responsibility. And then that doesn't end up feeling like work. I don't feel beaten down by that. And it's crazy. It's like that counterintuitive thing about the more you 
work out, the more energy you have. People say, how can that be possible? Mm -hmm. It's X in, X out game, zero sum game. No, for some reason, the more you do, the more energy you have. That's kind of like I find it really seeps into every aspect of my life. Like the the core foundation of my life is I have to be exercising specifically at least some running and and some lifting. And if if I go through, I, I've gone through periods where I've kind of fallen out of them, where I kind of am and not a lot, and and all of a sudden things don't get done. I feel like I'm burning out just in what I'm engaged in. And, and all these different aspects of my life just start kind of falling off. And all of a sudden I don't have discipline. I'll just sit and watch TV. And, and as soon as I start getting back into running and back into working out, even if it's just a little bit, all of a sudden I, I have a desire and a will to do things, which, which I guess, I guess you could almost call that willpower to an extent. Like I, I, I don't, even know how willpower works but it shows up when i start actually just exercising that's just right. the basis of it and, and and that's why i'm so i don't know that's why I, I wish everyone would just like really give it a fair chance to see because if if i if i'm honest like i don't really work out or exercise to to really be physically healthy per se like i i want to look good and i want to be physically healthy but it's not enough to make me really get in the gym and do stuff. It's just knowing the impact that it has on my entire life and my other tasks. And then, and then my mentally, the, what I can do, it, it has such a big impact that to me, it's worth it. Like I wouldn't even care if the physical benefits were, were there or not. And that, that's another thing too. Like, have you always been in exercising or did you have to like kind of find it and go through like a journey, so to speak? A little bit of both, but what you just said there about when you start to exercise, you don't know where the willpower comes from, but it just shows up. Amen. That is a hundred percent. And, and I'm at the point, I, I agree with that so much that I don't even care where it comes from. I just know that it shows up. Like you said, I don't know where it comes from, why that happens, but it just shows up. So if I repeat that thing, start exercising, the willpower is there. Boom. Um, I hated distance running. I was a sprinter in high school. I used to like look on the distance runners and i used to think that like the 800 meter was distance yeah <laughs> I, I pity those guys and think you're one with the ground you're like a skinny fat marathon runner you're not a real athlete i was the most and and my best man at my wedding my best friend charlie we were the same way we were sprinters and we were real judgy about these guys but then luckily i had a great coach right everything kind of comes back to like a mentor or a, a role model doesn't it i had this great coach um Coach Island, he had me looking at middle distance and distance running in a different kind of way, almost like this is where discipline comes in. This is where you're going to battle with your mind because a hundred meter race, that's just whoever's the stronger, more athletic guy, right? Fast twitch muscles, whatever it is. I don't know. It's you get after it. The thing is over in 11 and a half seconds and that's it. But a, a mile race, you got to dig deep. You got to do some of this, some of the other. So I was never good at distance running. I had to do it for the army. So once I realized I had signed my contract to go into the army, I said, I've got to learn how to run far distances um, a lot more effectively than, than I had previously. So, you know. What, uh, what kind of, when was the first time the thought of joining the army popped in your head? When I was a little kid, I, I was a soldier for Halloween every single year. 
um, my sisters would get mad. They'd tell my parents, Frankie just wants to be a soldier for Halloween every year. So he more toy guns. And so he can wear this stuff through the whole year, all the camouflage. My parents were like, well, that's great. It's not just a one use thing. Like good. If that's what he wants. Yeah. I was a soldier, like almost every single year. Um, but then West End life got in the way and I had always thought I would join, did some ROTC when I was at Penn state. Um, just never really, it never seemed like the right time. Um, I said, I've got till 42 years old to join up because when I was growing up, when the war came on, I remember very clearly army had cut the age off at 42. I said, I got all the time in the world, but I was working business, something in New York city. And I realized, I think the cutoff age, they changed it to like 34, 35. And I was right at that age. And I said, well, it's now or never. I had never considered living my whole life and not joining up at some point. Once I hit 34 years old or 33, I realized it's now or never. So I had to walk down to the recruiting office in Queens and I signed up. Wow. What do, do you know at all? Like what, what just planted that in your head? You know, for like from, from a little kid, like, do you have any idea? I do. I was at the supermarket with my mom. I went with my mom everywhere. I was a mama's boy. Even when I graduated from college, I moved back to New York to live with my mom. Not out of not because I had to, because I liked smoking cigarettes with her and drinking beers and playing poker and cooking together. We were bros. Like she was the best. And ever since I was a little kid, I was with her everywhere she went. She would hang wallpaper for side jobs and I would go with her and she would go pick up us. Uh, we'd go to the supermarket and pick up a sandwich to have once in the morning for lunchtime. And I remember very clearly walking through the supermarket doors and a guy stood off to the side to let us go through. And I don't remember if he was wearing maybe like a class A uniform. It was not camouflage. It wasn't fatigues. But he was very polite, morning ma'am, and let us go by. And I said something to my mom about it. He kind of caught my eye. And then I noticed my mom treated him kind of a certain way. And I said something to my mom about it. he was very nice. And she said something to me about that he's very dangerous as well. Something about the military thing, guns, something. And I was thinking, whoa, hold on. So is he a nice guy with good manners or is he a dangerous guy who gets after it with guns? And she explained, he's probably both. And certain people who are very dangerous and get after it with guns are also very kind, very considerate, very respectful people. That stuck in my head that day because I thought it was one or the other, right? As a little kid, black and white. Oh, you got the bad guys and they're aggressive, this and that. And then you have the nice guys, Mother Teresa over here. I went to Catholic school. So the nice guys were always very passive in the narratives that I was taught in school. But when my mom pointed that out about, oh, that guy there, that guy, yeah, he's very polite with the yes ma'am, no ma'am and stepping off to the side and this and that, but he's a very dangerous guy. I was just in love with that thought. Yeah, you know, that goes... It goes right back to something Jordan Peterson always talked about where he, he said that uh, I think he was talking maybe on the concept of like nice guys finish last. He was like making a distinction that it's the nice guys in quotes that finish last are usually the um, not capable isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but not competent. They're not competent, strong individuals, and they are labeled as nice because they are not threatening. 
but the but the difference lies in a, a real nice guy, so to speak, is someone who 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 is a monster and who has fully explored the monster within himself and has tamed it and controlled it and has built that competence and ability to tame that whatever I guess you could call it testosterone animal that that is you know men depending on the situation but they figured out how to tame that and fully are in touch with it while not giving into the darker side of it and and that sounds like even you know on a subconscious level like as a child it just like that thought hit you of like oh you can be a monster but control it and be this i don't know uplifting person all at the same time yeah exactly that was and and i thought about that that exact thing he uh he said that on Jocko's podcast, he said something like a good man is not a harmless man. A good man is a very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control. I, I remember the words he used was has that under voluntary control. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, I've kind of, it's, it's like when you hear somebody say something, you kind of always believed it's been inside of you and, and inside of your soul, your whole life. You've kind of just intuitively understood this thing, but then somebody puts it into words. Agreed. Yeah. I agree with that. You know, Cause even in like, you know, generally, like, I don't want to be judgmental towards people and, and look at people in certain lights, but there is just like this base level, um, almost like if you meet someone who is like a very nice, not competent, you could say weak individual, there's just almost uh, like, not a repulsion, but just like, a, what, what are, like, what are you doing? Like, how, like, it, it feels off in, in my, in my head and in my brain. <clears throat> and even in like the absence of really like judging him, I'm just like, I just don't believe that you are happy in that state because no one doesn't want to feel like they're competent, like they can defend themselves, like they're strong. And in the absence of that, um, I, I think there's just like this hole that gets filled by whatever it may be, or even just the comfort of being the disguise of I'm the non-threatening person or or individual and i guess that plays back into exercise and you know that that's where a lot of like my confidence came from like i had no confidence really you know growing up and and as i was getting older and stuff and and, and exercising is what started building that of like i can do things i can accomplish things i can actually complete hard things and, and again it just is all in the mental aspect and, and so much is affected by it so when when you joined the army did you really have confidence in yourself was that already there and then the army just built on it or was it built as you were in there that's hard to say i was i was always pretty confident i always had a lot of confidence um but i was very i was super I was nervous about joining the army, you know, because what 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 else is there that has a kind of mystique around it? Like you talk to any kid in the world and they say, what happens at boot camp? People screaming at you and crawling through mud and being thrown into a gas chamber and just all this insanity. Like, like that's just what people think of. And I was very, very, very nervous to go in. Um, but I was very confident. Probably I was I'm just going to be honest, I was very arrogant growing up, very, very arrogant um too much confidence like i said i had parents that supported me um they tried to instill humility but just my my brain chemistry 
uh, I just always was a little bit on the arrogant side. Maybe I still am. I need to work on my humility. But joining the army, I took that seriously and I was a little nervous about it. Um, as a matter of fact, I asked my father, I said, what's the hardest thing about the army? Because he was in the army. I said, what am I, what am I getting into here? And he said, it depends on the person. And I said, oh, that's such a non-answer. It depends. I said, can you be more specific? He said, I'll be happy to be specific. He's, he's very careful with his words and he's a very, very intelligent guy. He said, I'll give you a very specific example about how everybody's different. He said, talking about himself, he said, me? He said, uh, oh, he said, something that'll make you miserable, another guy might actually even enjoy. And something that you enjoy will make somebody else miserable. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, this is what I'm talking about. He said, in the chow hall, he said, if it's still like it was when I was in there, you're going to be rushed sometimes, and you might not be able to finish all of your food. He said, I was from a big Italian family, and I love food. And when they told me the first time you're done, and I had most of my food left on my tray, he said, that's one of the most miserable moments of my whole life. He said, that was absolute misery for me, unhappiness, that you just told me that I have all this food here, and I have to stop eating and walk out of this place. He said that made him miserable, but the guy next to him couldn't care less. Guy eats just a little bit, you know, eating's not a big deal. He said, eating's not even a big deal to everybody. He said, I had a guy whose, whose locker was next to me in the barracks, whatever. He said, it didn't bother him that they cut us short of our meals. He said, but we were going along rock march. He said, and I'd be there walking with my rifle, just loving it. It's like a walk in nature. Everybody shut their mouths. I could deal with my own thoughts, daydream. And all I, ha I don't have to think about anything. I just walk for miles and miles and miles. He said, I love that. He said, I actually enjoyed it. He said, that same guy who didn't mind being cut short on his meals is behind me making like dying animal noises. Because in the morning, if he finds out we have to ruck, he said it was like the end of the world for him. He had bad knees and bad feet and bad ankles and a bad attitude. Yeah. So that was a very concrete example to me of you won't know till you get there. You know, what makes you miserable isn't the same thing that's going to make the other guy miserable. And something that you actually enjoy will be different from what some other guy enjoys. So that create a lot of, of anxiety for me too. Like, do I even know who I am? What am I going to like about the military? Will I hate all of it? Will I hate all of it? I don't know. And back to your previous thing, my recruiter in Queens told me, he said, I think there's only one thing that will definitely make you miserable in the military. He said, if you really, really, really hate running, you'll be miserable the whole time because there's no getting out of running. And that's when I started picking up the mileage when he said that, and a couple things about what my dad said. My dad took it very seriously, too. He said he dropped a lot of weight and was hitting the miles hard out on the roads because he didn't want to, you know, be lost in the sauce out there. So, yeah, I was nervous about the Army. I was confident in everything before that. But the Army made me, I was a little scared, if I'm going to be honest with you, a little scared. So I guess on that note, what did you love and then what did you hate that made you miserable in the Army? Or in basic and then in the Army in general? I loved waking up at the same time every day. I loved the army breakfast. I loved PTing with everyone. I loved the, um, the politically incorrect sense of humor that you're allowed to have with your bros and nobody gets offended. I love being able to speak freely and my, my bros love me just the same. I didn't have to walk on eggshells ever. Um, didn't mind the food, loved the guns, loved people talking about violence. I love like a, you say something cold, some cold bone chilling stuff. I love that. I like get off on that. And I don't think 
I know it's whatever people, highbrow intellectuals might look down on me for that, but I love it. And when a drill sergeant said to me, make no mistake, privates, somebody somewhere in the world right now is training very hard to kill you. And I thought to myself, mm, a lot of people say some bullshit to me. And my parents taught me how to be a critical thinker. So let me think about this. Is he exaggerating or is this true? And that's true. If you're in the, if you're in the military, you need to come to terms with the fact that somebody is training very hard to kill you. They dedicated their entire lives to training in some crazy monkey bar backyard terrorist thing. They're training really hard to kill you. I loved that. It didn't make me scared. I was, I just loved it. I loved the idea. I loved all that violent talk. I loved yelling kill. You know, when you get into that ready thing to run, I loved that. I loved chanting real bone chilling stuff. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I think of myself as like a peace lover, but I loved all that violent stuff. I love fighting. Yeah. I just loved it. How long, um, how long were you in the army before you deployed? I guess we deployed in 2013. I forget which month and joined up February 7th, 2011 was my like ship date. So I guess a year, I'm not sure about a year in maybe. Oh, wow. That's fairly maybe. quick. It was pretty quick. It was pretty quick, but it wasn't that quick. We had a guy, Rukai, uh, Rukai. Um, he came in and he deployed like immediately, pretty much out of AIT. He joined up with our platoon and he, I mean, fresh out of AIT. And the next thing you know, he's on a plane to Afghanistan, which was wild. And I remember thinking, I'm lucky to have had some time in the army. It wasn't a long time, but I was lucky to have had some time before flying right over there. Yeah. What did you think when you found out you were deploying? God, I wrote journal entries on it. I wrote about everything. I, I, I got to pull them out. I was, I was pretty scared, but I was pumped about it. Like that good feeling you get before like a race or a football game or something. I was like, this is what I signed up for. Let's do it. Um, I was pretty nervous, but not that nervous. Um, it got real when the chaplain called us in or our commander or something, and it wasn't a big group. And he said, the fact of the matter is, gents, we're all going over there, but we're not all coming home. You need to come to terms with that. It's like, okay, this is real then. If they're already saying that we're all gonna go there, but some are gonna die over there. Like our whole unit's not coming home. We're all gonna go there, but we're not all coming home because some are gonna die which ended up being true. Um, that had quite an effect on me. But um, the turning, I remember the turning point was we were in Kyrgyzstan. I don't even know how to say the country name, but before we got to Afghanistan, we stopped over for like five days in Kyrgyzstan, however you say it. And the guys on their, on their, um, on their bunks who had deployed already were calm. And the guys like me who had never deployed were the ones acting nervous. I said, let me try to apply some logic to this. Those who know are calm. Those who don't know are nervous. So what is to come can't be that awful if these guys who have already done it are willing to go back and do it again and they look stoic. So I was like, I remember Sergeant Summers was the one I looked at. Still buddy of mine. I looked at Sergeant Summers who had deployed at least twice before that, calm. 
Doc Hooker had deployed three times before that, once to Afghanistan, twice to Iraq, I believe. Calm. And I said, I can be calm. Man. It's going to be okay. So, yeah. That goes to uh, just, again, like the, the lack of familiarity and comfort. Is just it just evokes fear because that I mean, I'm assuming that's how you know our ancestors ancestors have died in the past. You go to this new place that you don't know about. There's all kinds of terrain you you, you encounter or animals, and then a lot of people die because you don't know you don't know how to work and how to maneuver. And it's just like this DNA imprint in in every single human. We're like new is scary, and it and it takes it takes mental gymnastics, kind of like you did to. To kind of bypass that blockage where you you have to like look up over you know just like peek up over that that dna urge that new is scary and just connecting your mind why you know why is this worth it why why should i be going this way and making uh, what is a risk you know obviously like it's anything new is a risk in some regard like business army or or life what when the chaplain had said that to you what was your kind of relationship with death at that point and your own mortality? Ooh, I'm not sure. Well, I am sure. I thought that if it's my time and I'm going to go, I believe the banquet's better upstairs than it is downstairs. Um, that's just me, my personal belief. I don't have a lot to back it up, but I do firmly believe that. So I was thinking if God's going to take me while I'm there, um, at least. I will die having served my country. I could die a junkie with a, with a needle in my arm. What I do for a living now, I see junkies dying all the time. That's a way that my family can remember me as a junkie. Or they can say he died in uniform. So I was okay with it. I'm, I've never really been afraid to die. Have, after having kids now, I'm a little bit afraid to die. I'm very afraid mm. to die. Before having kids, I wasn't really afraid to die, to be honest. I'd be more afraid of being publicly humiliated than dying. To be completely honest, yeah, I I get that. Just the uh, just the idea of being an outcast is worse than dying as being in the group, so to speak, or at yeah. least being or at least being in the group of the people that mean something to you. You know, like if I'm publicly shamed for you know I don't know whatever it is that it's just some people I don't really care about. I'll I'll get over it, work my way through it. But if it would be people that were in like the inner circle or close to the inner circle adjacent, that that's where, you know, a lot of that fear can start coming in. Right. Um, what I'm trying to think how I want to want to word it. like how like a lot of like what I find so powerful about Jocko is his ability to really analyze his life and and how war and the military has has gone into different aspects of it in ways he didn't know so who who were you before the army versus after the army after deployment how how did it shift your life for good and bad i was like a peacock before the army try to look like i was something bigger than i was i was arrogant most of it was false arrogance to be honest i was good at maybe this good at maybe that but it was like trying to put on almost like an act like like hey, look at me, I'm capable of this. Post-Army, I, I just really felt capable. I did. Like, I felt like I was authentically confident in just handling myself in every kind of way, you know? Extreme stress and this and that and 
I mean, I'll go out and I'll run 10 miles now. Tonight, I'm going to run 10 miles. I'm going to run out my door and I'm going to run 10 miles. And it might come pissing down rain in my face or I might get a leg cramp or I, I ran on a broken toe the other day. It doesn't matter to me because I used to be drunk in my barracks room, wake up and PT at 5 a.m. with guys coming into my, with grown men coming into my room as a grown man and telling me I can't have more than six beers in my refrigerator as a 38-year-old man and testing dust in my room. I had to deal with that, you know? So nothing bothers me anymore. I just, I, I think I have authentic confidence, like real confidence to pretty much do anything. And I think that's from the army. I really do. I think that just how poorly we could be treated there. Um, and it's probably by design for the most part. And just being able to deal with it. There's nothing that really bothers me too much anymore. I, I was on patrols in Southern Afghanistan. I swept for landmines. I was the mine hound guy sweeping for mines. And I was, uh, Parker McCumber was behind me and it's dark and we're wearing night vision goggles and I'm sweeping for bombs. And like, I had to go to this class and I knew how to operate this $35,000 machine really well. And that was so dangerous. That was so incredibly dangerous doing that, that you can't even feel scared or, or angry. You can only laugh about it. Like we would, we were cracking jokes back and forth about, look how insane this is. Look at what we're doing. We're walking in the dark through, for, through grape rows or whatever they're called. And um, we're trying to detect bombs. And there's a guy with a, with a mine hound trying to detect a bomb. And we're walking here on purpose. Like, what's more dangerous and insane than that? Not many things. So after that, everything's easy. An argument with, with, with you know, my wife, we don't get in a lot of arguments. But, like, it just really puts everything in perspective. Yeah. When, when did you meet your wife? I met her in 2010 or 2011. We can't quite figure it out, but we worked for the um, the same family in New York City. She was a nanny and I was a, a personal assistant. So, yeah, that's how we met was in our boss's kitchen, I guess, or living room. Yeah. Huh. What, uh, I, I guess I'm going along the same lines as the Army. How did meeting her really shift you from like pre, pre your wife to post you now being married? How did, how did that change you? Oh man, um, just being married is just better than being single. Like being married is just awesome. You just, you don't realize how much of like the rituals of the world like are part of your life. And then when you think of like the holidays or you think of, you know, a night where people would be watching a movie or you think of, oh, I'm invited to this wedding. Who do I go with? Or you're thinking, I'd like to go eat breakfast. Do I want to go by myself? Um, just being married is awesome. Um, it's just, it makes you feel calm. And um, what is it that they say generally that people want in marriage? Stability, right? Um, and I don't know, I'm still madly in love with her. She's awesome. I just, she's the greatest thing ever. Like we just, we click. And being married is just awesome. I just don't have anything. I can't, it's just the best. I just really love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I have yeah. words and I just love it you know yeah I mean I kind of get that because I think it, it, it almost offers um it almost offers like uh, a high level safe environment that we crave while having you know it has problem solving within it and has chaos within it but it's like this bubble of safety 
that you can then, I don't know, I guess almost navigate your way through the world, kind of like a, a marriage bubble boy, kind of where you're going through the world and there's like this, this thing, this container that you can go through chaos with something to, to ground you in a sense. Perfect way to describe it. Cause the chaos is there. You're right. The chaos is there inside of it. You have to have some chaos, right? But it's there and it's, it's, it's enveloped in, in a, in a safe bubble. So your, your chaos can stay under control a little bit, but it's still there. Keep things interesting. Do you yeah. think kids add more chaos or more stability? More stability. You have to get on a schedule. It can put you back into like an army mentality. Um, oh, I have tomorrow off. No, I don't. I'm waking up at 0700 because she's, my daughter's going to wake up at 0700 and she's going to eat her cream of wheat with peanut butter and banana at 730. <laughs> yeah, she's not negotiating those times. No, it puts you back. <laughs> yeah, puts you back in a schedule. Now, I will say this: I married the right woman. I have way too many homeboys and and people I just know that married the wrong woman. That's that's the wrong answer. You want? We all know how that story ends. That movie ends the same way. That's nothing but pain and suffering at the end of that road. So, I married the right woman. Thank God. You know, thank God I married the right woman. Because yeah, the, the key part, otherwise you just get chaos and chaos. Oh, chaos and chaos and misery and, and doubt and lack of meaning and lack of enjoyment and just, oh man, can't even imagine. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. What, um, so you said you're running 10 miles today. Did you get in distance running in the army, like, like the level that you are at now? Or was that post-army, you kind of got something to resurface with that? I, uh, I ran... In the army, I started running distance in the army and I wanted like the next big thing. I just wanted to, to keep pushing my limits. Um, so I, I ran a marathon while I was in Germany. Uh, one of the lieutenants we worked with, I took a train ride out to Frankfurt and we ran the Frankfurt marathon. And I ran the army 10 miler over there. I just wanted to push the limits a little bit for the next thing. And distance running, I think that's a good way to push limits. Um, you know, it can be, it can be measured, right? So I can always know if I'm improving, if I'm getting worse, if I'm hitting a plateau. That's, you know, kind of how I got into it was in Germany mostly. Huh, that, I, man, I didn't even think to, I guess I wasn't into running at the time, but that would, that would have been a super cool experience, like to run, to run a marathon in Europe. That seems yeah. really cool. Yeah. What, yeah. what did you think of like the marathon, like as you were doing it and then afterwards, like what was your, I, don't know, I guess, just thought process and general view of it? A lot of people, I have this thought that a lot of people had with a marathon. This is pretty common if you've read anything about marathons. Um, they say you have to tell a marathon before you run a marathon. Otherwise, the doubt monster might make you quit because I would have quit at about 16 miles in if I didn't go and tell everybody with my big mouth that I was going to run a marathon. Um, there were times that I thought I was going to have to go down on the ground and scream for a medic, honestly. I've written about it a little bit, but it was hard for me because I didn't put the miles in. I didn't do the right training. I ran a good time, 3.52, I think. Um, but it was hard and it was miserable. And I could see how people lose toenails and, and defecate on themselves uncontrollably. It's just, it's a pretty miserable experience for most of it. You know, maybe the first eight miles were fun, but after that, it was just, it was misery. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it does, it kind of drones on continually and it like builds <laughs> the farther you go. And then like, I remember being angry at myself the first time I ran a marathon. I was just like, why did I even do this? Like, this is just stupid. Like, what am I trying to prove? Who cares? Like, 
I was just getting angry at myself for being so stupid to do this for no apparent reason. But it was the same thing. I, I told a bunch of people I was doing it and it's just like, well, I'm not, even though like it really wouldn't matter. Like I even had that thought enter, enter my brain where I was like, I could quit and like, no one cares. No one cares at all. So I could just quit and like, what's the big deal? And I, you almost have to like give your, I think David Goggins talks about this of like, you almost have to give your brain space to breathe and freak out a little bit where it's just like, okay, I, I might quit. And you just almost lied to yourself that like, once I hit this point, I will consider quitting. And then you just, you know, you're lying to yourself, but it's oddly works somehow. I, I don't know how, Yeah. but I've found that running really, I don't know, it parallels life so well, which is, which is why I like doing it of, you know, you have this task that seems fairly long mm-hmm. and, and it's going to be difficult and you're going to have like doubts and, and all these different little mental tricks that, that play into it. But if you just like, just keep going even if even if you don't know how anything's going to work if you just kind of keep moving in that direction eventually you hit that point and and then you've done it right i I just think it goes everything in life like everything in life i've ever done really that was somewhat difficult has paralleled paralleled that um have you all those things when they say if you're going through hell keep on going that's a marathon keep on it'll be over but you're right. When you say that you get angry, I forgot about the anger aspect. I felt a lot of anger in my marathon. I felt angry that I had earbuds in. I'm thinking, why did I think I knew more than these real marathoners who don't listen to music? Because the music made me angry after a while. Where if somebody would pass me and they wouldn't stay in front of me and I would pass them, I'm thinking, I'd get angry. Like, What's this person doing? Like I had all the emotions. It's just like life. You go through every emotion. Mm. Did you get a r- little bit of a runner's high at any point? Um, I... Not really, not during it. I mean, it, like the first little bit was like fairly easy. And then maybe I got just like a touch of not feeling like I'm dying, you know, to some extent between like, from like maybe mile 19 to 20. And that was only because I was running a trail marathon that also is like a bike route. And they they had what I thought were mile marker countdown things for the marathon and it was like one said like three and then and and then it it was something low like that so i was like oh like i didn't know how far i'd gone so i was like i I knew i'd gone far so i was like oh i'm like right there almost done and then like i go past like the last what i thought was the last mile marker and there's like no finish line and i just keep running more and more and more and i realized those are like for some bike thing that i'm not even aware of and that i still have a really long ways to go and like at that point then it'll just all shut off (laughs) it's just like the motivation that was there like so much of that mentalness motivation it just just kind of went out and it's like well we're just back to where we started more or less that would be so demoralizing to me i i would be angry and demoralized oh man i can't even imagine that yeah And, and i get too if you say people passing you you kind of just like you know, it was just something that's kind of, you feel from that. I remember, cause it was a, they also had a 50 miler and a hundred mile miler going on the same route. And, you know, they just started earlier than the marathon people. And I remember, you know, starting, we're running, you know, this route and a guy who's either doing the 50 or the hundred miler, just like 
blows past me. And I know he's been running for probably like, I don't know, five or six hours at that point, at least. And he just goes past me, just continues on. And I'm dying because there's a ton of hills. And, it's, and there's just almost like a, you're almost angry that he is not suffering to the extent that you are. And then it just brings up all this, like, well, I obviously did not prepare to the extent I should have, you yeah. know, and it, all this stuff it brings up, which is why I, which is why I, I enjoy it. You know, it, it does, it brings up all these different emotions and, and just thinking. And, and I started off, I think with um, headphones yeah. uh, and I listened to some music and then yeah, after a while you start going, it's just like, I don't even know what the feeling was, but it's just like, I had the, the need to take them out. It's like exactly. overstimulation almost. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. Exactly what I felt. I had to take them out. I, I was angry. They were in my ears. The music made me angry after a certain point. And I would, I wrote a little bit about this. There was a guy must've been 75 years old passing me. Like I'm not even moving and maintained it. And I said, God, you are very good at humbling me. Mm-hmm. You, are, you are taking humility and shoving it down my throat and, and, and humiliating me. A 75-year-old man just, like I wasn't even moving. <laughs> like, this is, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I remember I had that experience when I, when I ran. A, the first time I'd ever done a race was like a 5K when I was like 16 or something. I'm 16 years old, you know, what, what I should be very healthy and just, you know, be able to move well and i remember i remember this guy i don't know how old he was but he had to be somewhere in that vicinity and he passed me and i got angry and i was like all right i'm speeding up so i kept pace with him for i don't know probably half a mile and then just like could not do it i could not keep pace with this guy who who had like kind of like a bernie sanders hunched over to a certain extent you know posture and was just running and just not paying attention to anyone else and it's very very humbling because especially at that age, like I thought, you know, like, yeah, I'm kind of kind of cool, kind of the shit to some extent, like at least a little bit. And and it just obliterates that that sense of, you know, you just you see where you stack in, in the grand scheme of things. And at least for me, it's not been on top when it comes to to running. Me. Oh, me. Either. No, not even close there. Um, it was Rogan and either Goggins or Jocko. They all kind of run together to me. Some of the usual characters where I was listening to them and Rogan said. He said, you can't be angry when you're done with a 10 mile run. You just, it's like taking a, like, like taking a good dump. He said, your mind, your brain, when you're done with running a real distance, you're just like, ah, nothing can even bother me at this point because you go through all the emotions during the run. And then when you're done, you're done. It's like the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, so how did you feel directly after you finished it? Like when you crossed the finish line and then how did you feel like? three months later in comparison to that from my first marathon yeah I guess finishing the crossing the finish line I was like ecstatic had my arms up the BMW Frankfurt Marathon sent you know they sent the pictures they wanted to buy and I'm like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so happy to have finished them um, uh myself and Lieutenant McAteer we got on a train to go back to uh, Nuremberg right and he had to pull me up out of the chair my legs were so dead after like sitting and freezing up and i was just i felt miserable but then a few months after that i just i don't know i just i felt like it was i felt very accomplished you know a marathon that's like something you check off the list you know it's kind of like one of those things if you ever run a marathon why yes yes i have (laughs) (laughs) that yeah because i had i guess i had a similar similar experience of 
Well, right after I finished it, I just didn't, I don't know, I didn't feel any happiness or accomplishment from it. I just felt like kind of like a waste. But, but then as time went on, I found, I, I don't know, I just, all of a sudden it just meant so much more to me that I did it. And it reminded me of, um, have you ever heard of Steve Ranella? No. He's a, he's like a fairly popular hunter. You know, he's like a Netflix show, but he was talking about this like hunt he went on that just really sucked and it was raining and there was terrible hiking that it go long distances, barely got anything. It was just terrible. And he was saying that there, there are like two types of fun. There's the roller coaster type of fun where you're like, you're doing it. I'm like, yeah, this is so cool. And then you get done with it and you kind of forget it because it, you know, it's just like a in the moment things is fun, but it never has any lasting impression. And then there's the second kind of fun, which just sucks and you hate it so much while you're doing it and, and you're not even enjoying yourself remotely. And then three months later, six months, a year later, you look back and like, wow, that was, that was really cool. That was really fun. I'm going to do that again. Yeah. You know, and I think running is the same way because I, you know, I have a short memory when it comes to running. I forget that I got all angry and had all those, you know, thoughts and got mad at myself. I'd be like, ah, oh, man, that was really cool. I need to, I need to do that again. It's like an addiction to some extent. Yeah. Like how people are with getting tattoos. They like the pain. They need it again. Oh, never again. And then it's, I need it again. Yeah. Um, man, the, uh, there's another metaphor for like marathons that when it's all over and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that was really hard, but I was able to do it. In Frankfurt, I said, that wasn't so bad. But in Frankfurt, I think I was probably running with 45,000 other people. So the kind of the fellowship aspect of, oh, this guy's running with me and it's, it's great and there's balloons and there's all kinds of stuff going on. That brought me through the 26.2. I felt guilty about that. The only marathon I'd ever run was in a country that wasn't my own. So I got back home. I said, I have to run one marathon in America. I don't want to be a marathoner. I did it just knocked off the list, but I have to run one in America. And I ran one here in uh, the beaches in Jacksonville, and I had a low number of runners. And that made it so hard for me to run that I didn't have the encouragement around me and the whole, the, the pomp and circumstance of it all, you know, and the crowds and the energy that like it beat me down. And I think that's almost an analogy for life too. You're going to go through something really, really, really hard. It's good to have a lot of support around. It's good to have a lot of other souls who are getting after the same thing as you, you know, the, the, the fellowship of it and, and all that, because when it becomes a lonely thing, it's hard to push through something lonely. And this merit, this marathon here didn't have a lot of runners. And I just felt like alone most of the time, like, what am I doing? This is such a drag. So it was a completely different experience for me. Yeah. And it's that, like the, the like loneliness and anger, all those, just whatever you want to call them, lower emotions or wh whatever the case may be like those those are, you know, great for that short burst of like, I'm angry. I'm just going to like do this thing. And it, it just never really, it's not like long lasting fuel. It, it, you know, it burns so hot and, you know, I can play like the second marathon I did. I, you know, played like metal music for a little bit. And then like, it got me real pumped for just like a little bit. And then after a little while, it's just like, now, nah, like this is, does nothing for me. And you know, it really does come back to all these different things that happen in life. Like it, 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 connection to people around you is really all that matters because what are you affecting if you're not affecting the people around you? You know, like if you're not having a positive impact on them, 
then then you know what are you even doing in life to some extent which probably yeah, goes no. to being married too because you get this chance to and having kids like i don't have kids but imagine it's just like the, the meaning that you derive from it because you have been like gifted this incredible responsibility to positively impact someone else's life and and, and i imagine that 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 is almost scary to some extent do you feel scared because of that or or are you just really i don't know happy focused i guess i feel terrified all the time having kids yeah. is terrifying it's absolutely terrifying i'm afraid that my daughter and my son are like gonna choke on something and die every night it's but it it i don't know um jordan peterson said that the people who are crazy are not the people who are like, oh no, there's there's tragedy at every corner and everything could kill me. He says, no, those are the people who are thinking straight because that's how life is. Anything can kill you at any time and disease is lurking around the corner and it's gonna bring you down and there's misery and pain everywhere. He says the crazy people are the people who can still push on and you know have some kind of a positive outlook on it. He says, that's good, but just know you're the crazy ones. That's that's it's not logical. It's beyond logical. You know, you have to be yeah. bigger than logic somehow. But yeah, it's terrifying. Having kids is, is it's just absolutely terrifying. And I always think I'm being a horrible father. And oh, are, is it too much screen time? Oh, Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. We learn a little something. She's outside all day at the beach. This and that. She needs a little downtime. And I'm like, oh no, is it too much screen time? Oh no, she wants that popsicle that the other kids are having. Is that too much sugar? It's just I'm terrified about everything. But that's I guess that doesn't make me unique. I talk to other parents and they say the same thing. Like, yeah, it's really scary. Just yeah. I have, uh, I have friends who have, uh, I think she's like maybe six years old now, but especially when she was four and five, she would just be really kind of in your face, like wanting you to do stuff. And I remember the one time she was like asking me to do something. I, I was doing something else at the moment that I was focused on. I was like, no, 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 you know, I'll, I'll do this with you later. And then she kept like pressing and pressing and pressing. I was like, I will do this with you later, kind of sternly, and I remember like the moment I finished the sentence, it just like, I, I just felt terrible. I was like, you just got mad at like a five-year-old bundle of love who just wants to spend time with you. And I remember talking to my friends uh, who, who are parents about it. He's like, yeah, he's like, that is my life every single day of just like, you know, you get frustrated and angry. And then it's just like, oh my God, like I'm a, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible parent. And just like, forces you i guess to just look at all these aspects of yourself like all your emotions all your your negative tendencies they just i feel like the children just like bring it out of you to like have to face on some level exactly and it's it's horrible to have to feel that way and it's horrible to ever have to reprimand a two-year-old or it's, it feels horrible when they stick out their their lip and 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 honest sadness about something that you won't allow them to do and you want to allow them to do everything, but you don't want to because you know that would make you an enabler. And because you know that you read the literature too and that kids, too much choice, too much freedom creates all this anxiety that goes on into their adult life. Like that's crippling anxiety, too much choice and too much freedom. It like makes kids nervous and it's really unsettling to them. So like having the good boundaries is what makes them really happy and really fulfilled and all that. So it's like a balance, like at this moment, what I'm doing is making them so sad, but I know that it's the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, the, 
evidence is clear on that kind of thing. So it's it's a back and forth. It's hard. It's really hard. But at the yeah. same time, simple. simple though too. You know, you just do what you have to do. I mean, I guess simple to an extent. Like as someone from the outside looking in who doesn't have kids, there's nothing even remotely simple that it looks like to me. Like it, it evokes fear in me just from looking at someone take care of a child because I'll you know hear something on a podcast of like you should do this with your kids and I'm like oh my god I never thought of that like I would have messed my child up because I was not doing this thing that I just learned about now you know so I don't know there's just you know so much that you know children and marathons I guess are very similar in, in some sense just with even higher stakes and, and and higher I guess repercussions yeah there's Were you there um go ahead uh, I was I was just curious, like when you got out of the army, how did you like feel in general? Like, did like was there any you know like there's like the common struggling to redefine your mission, your purpose? Like, how did you feel when you got out? I got out feeling better than when I went in. Um, I felt super fortunate to not have been blown up and have all these injuries. I think myself and Doc Hooker were like the two in our squad that didn't get blown up over there. Um, captain got shrapnel through the throat. He went right out. Sergeant Frank, he went right out. A uh, bunch of other guys. Um, I got out in one piece, felt great. Felt like I learned a lot. I stuck with plan A. My, my plan was one enlistment and done. And um, my dad was smart enough to teach me from a very young age that I need to learn from other people's mistakes and that life is way too short that, yeah, that'd be great. Oh, just learn from your own mistakes, trial and error. Oh, give it a shot. Try it. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to learn from other people's mistakes. So I saw people who get out of the military and they let their, their, their bodies go to crap. Their relationships go to crap. Um, wouldn't seek out help if they need to help. Um, got away from discipline got away from any kind of regimented lifestyle and just went spiraling downhill. So I was very, very, very um, cautious of that getting out. So, you know, I stayed with working out and, and staying on top of hobbies and trying to find meaning in everything that I did and, and having goals, this and that and the other, I felt great about it. And when I held that DD-214 in my hand, it felt like a million bucks. It really felt like God loved me. I was thinking to myself, no more. No longer is another man going to tell me when it's okay for me to do what I want to do. I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I'm the boss of me now. <laughs> Did you feel yeah, which I guess like it's probably scary boss. to some people. I think some people, I, I, I think maybe to an extent like you, part of, I think the benefit of you joining the military when you're older is you were forced to live life on your own to at least, you know, some extent and you were forced to start just learning how you need to live. And, and I, I think that's probably, that probably like really served you well along with your parents raising you the way they did is you kind of figured out before you joined the army, this is who I am. This is how I need to conduct myself and live my life. And, and I think that's probably something that, you know, I mean, you probably went through, you know, ACAP the same of like, there isn't that really instillment like you don't have that same level of like a jocko telling you this is what you need to do you need to define your goals you need to stay disciplined this is how you stay disciplined there isn't really a lot of that you know going on so you know i think i, I can see how it, it would be easy to get out and and just a absence of of any order 
I guess would would be what it is. What did you, you went back into the reserves too for a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, they brought me in. My eight-year IR was about to be up, so they were hounding me and said, you do a try before you buy, and we can get you drilling with this reserve unit over here, and if you like it, you can re-sign a contract, but we can get you a slip you right in without having to extend a contract or without having to re-enlist at all. So I did that for a 35 series, I think, Intel analyst here in Jacksonville, and I just realized that I just hated not being the boss of me again. Yeah. So when that was up. I just said, no, thank you. And it would have caught, saved me like, right. It would have saved me thousands and thousands of dollars on childbirths, but it still wasn't worth it to me. Still wasn't worth it. <laughs> and I, I guess kind of where, where do you feel you're at now in terms of like, what do you think your strengths are that you've developed and what do you think you need to like work on and improve on right now? Gosh, I always need to work on humility. I need to work on patience. I need to work on not being so judgy. I'm a really judgy guy. Um, uh, when you said that you meet people who are like a little bit weak-minded, um, when I would deal as a school teacher, I was a school teacher before becoming a police officer, I would deal with children. I had a lot of patience with them. But when you mentioned earlier that you meet like a really like a weak, weak man, not physically weak, but just weak inside, um, and there's like a, a sense of revulsion. I'm almost ashamed of the fact that I feel a sense of revulsion when I come into contact with people like that a lot. And that's not a very Christian-like attitude of mine. Um, I should probably improve on that. There's a million things. I have like, like 10,000 character flaws that I have to just start working on. I write them down in a journal sometimes and I do the self-authoring program. And that was tough. That was a tough one as well. Yeah, I have a million negative characteristics that I need to work on, but um. You know, I got a good wife, so she keeps me in line. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I'm, I guess one of the, the last questions I have is if, if you could pick like one moment that you felt had like the single biggest impact on your entire life, do you have a moment like that that you think back to? And the one that just popped into my head was this. And don't hold me to this, but this is what popped into my head when you said, is there one moment? Um, I went to, I went to nice schools. My parents spent a lot of money that they probably didn't have to send me to really, really good schools. And they had a parent teacher conference and they would go in and talk to these nuns at night while I wasn't there about my progress. And I was very scared about that. I grew up in a very strict home too. And the schools were strict. The moment that I remember is the first time I went back to school the next day after a parent teacher conference. And I opened up my desk, it was these desks, you know, and I opened up my pencil box. And in the pencil box was like a $5 bill and a note from my dad. And I was just thinking, man, this is awesome. My dad was sitting in my desk and he cares about me. And he was sitting in my desk and talked to my teachers and said, you know, here's a note because I love you and here's $5. So that's when I was like, man, I have it good. Like that's how good I have it. That's the point that I think of in my life about like when people say, oh, how did you, how do you know that you felt loved? It sounds crazy to say because of a $5 bill, but it wasn't the $5 bill. It was the, you know, the no, and he was in my desk and he cared enough to show up here at night. And then as the years go on, I think more of that because I was a school teacher and I know how few parents give any kind of care at all about their kids' education. 
I mean, at all. So now I, I continue to think about that. At the time that it happened, I was thrilled. I was like, this is the best feeling in the world. My dad was in my desk and he gave me a note and here's a $5 bill and he loves me. And then as time goes on, I, I, I still think back to that moment. And I was like, that was important for me, you know, to know that my parents cared about me, even when I wasn't just right in front of them, you know, kind of like they're always like, I'm always on their mind kind of thing. So that's what jumped into my head. That was a big one for me. The pencil yeah. box thing. Yeah. The, you know, just especially too, as a kid, I think you feel the power of intent behind actions you know, like yeah. obviously your dad could probably left a $1 bill, $50 bill, and you're maybe been more excitement in, in like a $50 bill, but the, the intention behind all these different actions, you know, I think it goes to like, there's, there's no real meaningless action. Like you're like the intention set behind everything is really at the core of, of what's most important. And yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, love I, I don't know I, I loved everything that that you had to say which is why I, I wanted to talk to you because I just I, I love how you live your life and then how how you conduct yourself and I just wanted to honestly have a conversation with you use the podcast as an excuse yeah. you know to talk to people I'm interested in but um I, I really, really appreciate I like, coming on and doing this what was that I like the way your mind works you said at the end of your race that you were a little bit more reserved you're more reserved than I am, but you're a more deliberate, efficient thinker than I am. The way I, I appreciate how you formulate ideas and, and the words and stuff. You're very intelligent. Thank you. No, it's been a good Thank talk. You. I got more out of it than you did. <laughs> oh, no, I did get did get a lot out of it. But I yeah, and I'll, I'd be down to hit you up for another podcast sometime because I feel like there's still you know, more stuff to talk about. I mean, honestly, at some point too, I'm reading 12 rules for life or 12 more rules for life sometime. So maybe we could do like some type of book review at some point too. Uh, yeah, I'm on chapter three right now. I, uh, I tried to read this one like I just by straight reading through it, but I couldn't, I had to grab my pencil and, and mark up those margins, you know, about things that hit me so that I can remember mm -hmm. it. You'll, you'll enjoy it. It's a more personal account, I think this time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm excited, but I'll, um, so, yeah, I guess I guess that's the the end of the podcast. But um, I'll is there anything you want to you know you want to promote in any way or or talk about? Um, I don't think so. I don't I don't think that I do. Um, America. <laughs> yeah, good way to end it. <laughs>